When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It's summer sale time and we're giving podcast listeners an amazing 50% off an annual subscription to New Scientist. It's really an incredible deal. We have several bundles. One of them allows you to get completely unlimited access to the full New Scientist website for under £50 in the UK or $50 in the US. Go to newscientist.com slash pod50 to get this absolute bargain. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week we're joined by Claire Wilson in London and James Sinine and Jeremy Sue in New York. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. Howdy. This week we're going to hear about a new kind of voice assistant that gets right into your head. And we've got a super animal amphibian for life form of the week. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And we're also going to discuss why hard mental effort tires you out. There's a paper just out on that that has some new evidence on that question. And we're also going to talk about some of the most extraordinary numbers in existence, including Graham's number. Do you know about that one, Rowan? Uh, I didn't until recently, but Graham's number, I mean, doesn't everyone just want to know what that is? (laughs) And who Graham was. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that's coming up. But we're going to start with um, the climate hope or doom segment. As this week, the US is about to pass a historic piece of climate legislation. It's the Inflation Reduction Act, hashtag IRA, uh, which has been quite confusing if you're British or Irish. <laughs> but the Inflation Reduction Act has uh, it's got $370 billion of spending on climate stuff. Uh, so, James, look, climate hope, isn't it? Uh, tell us mm. about this. And, and, what, but, and also, but we'll get on to why some people are still being a bit doomy about it. So the big news on Sunday, the Senate passed the bill, uh, 51 votes to 50, and it's expected that the House will pass the bill by the end of the week, at which point it would become law with President Joe Biden's signature. But just two weeks ago, it looked as though nothing like this would happen at all. It was all climate doom. And then Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia revealed that he had come to an agreement Hmm. with uh, Senate... You have to boo Manchin. <laughs> I suppose you have to che- you maybe cheer him now that you've yeah. finally done it. I, well, you know, it's definitely a mystery. So Manchin revealed that he had come to an agreement with the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on this bill. And it's not nearly as big as the original 
Build Back Better plan proposed by the Biden administration. But the bill is nonetheless enormous, expected to raise $790 billion in revenue and savings. A lot of that money would go towards health care and reducing the federal deficit. But people in the environment world are excited about the estimated $369 billion that would go towards energy and climate change priorities. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's what the biggest spend on on green energy and climate stuff ever anywhere, isn't it? Yeah. So the the word of the day is historic for sure. Um, early estimates say the bill would reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions mm. by thirty one to forty four percent below two thousand five levels by twenty thirty. Without the bill, the U.S. was on track to reduce emissions by twenty four to thirty five percent below two thousand five levels by twenty thirty. So. The expected reductions, you know, even at that high end of 44%, still fall short of the Biden administration's target of a 50% reduction by 2030. But people I spoke with said that gap could be made up through executive actions or other regulations through agencies. In the bill itself, there's there's a lot of right. stuff that aims to achieve this reduction. It's a big, fat, 700-page piece of legislation. But just broadly speaking, it aims to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in two main ways, by electrifying things that currently run on fossil fuels. And then the other side is generating more electricity using renewable and clean energy sources. Just some highlights in the bill. There are, there are tax credits for electric vehicles and low-carbon home renovations like rooftop solar panels. There's $30 billion in grants and credits to get states and utilities to decarbonize their grids, $60 billion for clean energy manufacturing. There's some support for hydrogen, for carbon capture, for keeping nuclear plants open. And the bill also has some other interesting ideas that I'll throw out there. It puts $27 billion towards a green bank to invest in public-private partnerships that would cut emissions, with $8 billion of that specifically directed to disadvantaged communities. There's $20 billion for, quote, climate smart agricultural practices, which is somewhat undefined, but could could lead to some interesting things. $4 billion would go towards addressing the water crisis Mm -hmm. in the Western US. It establishes a fine for methane leaks, and there's a lot more. Yeah, as you say, there's a ton of stuff there. And I guess the take-home message is if we do get to within striking distance of of that 50% reduction in emissions, that's massive. So look, why are some people gloomy about it? Yeah, so you have to remember that the bill is a product of these negotiations right. that happened. And, you know, there, there are some compromises in there. And climate and environmental groups have really raised the alarm about the bill's simultaneous support for new fossil fuel development, even as it has all of the support for clean energy, renewable energy development. One lawyer told me the bill is a hostage situation, locking in things like new oil and gas leases on public lands, even as it pushes clean energy. And they said they aim to fight those parts of the package even beyond its passage in the House or if it does become legislation. So there's no doubt that this will shape U.S. action on climate for years to come. But it will be interesting to see how all of these plans and all of this money actually gets spent. Recall that the bill's emissions reductions ranged from 31 percent to 44 percent. So where it falls within that range remains to be seen. Yeah, so that's quite big, isn't it? It actually overlaps at the low end with what the US was already on track for. But it's really exciting news for once. And and 
while you're here, James, let's just mention another story that you've been reporting for us, showing that just 10 financial institutions own nearly half of the unburned fossil fuels from the world's largest fossil fuel companies and could influence a transition away from them. Yeah, so some researchers did this really interesting piece looking at influence um, among the world's largest fossil fuel companies, and they identified 918 shareholders who own 1% or more of the world's largest 200 coal, oil, and gas companies. And then they calculated how much of the potential emissions from the unburned fossil fuels each shareholder owned. And then they also looked at who was most central in the network of shareholders. They sort of described it as who's who's the person who's friends with everyone. Some some names there aren't a huge surprise, but the, the most influential share, shareholders were the asset management firms BlackRock and Vanguard. These were followed by the government of India and the asset manager State Street. Others in that top 10 list were Saudi Arabia, India's Life Insurance Corporation, Norway's Central Bank, Dimensional Fund Advisors, Capital Group, and Fidelity Investments. Many of the other shareholders in that group of 918 were actually individual people with high net worth. Together, the top 10 institutions own nearly half of potential emissions within the top 200 fossil fuel companies um, and had on average 20 times more connections within that network than the other shareholders. So is the aim of this study, was it to put pressure on these entities? And like when you say individual people, Mm -hmm. you know, does that mean we can go after them, basically. I mean, do the researchers say how we can act on this information and, you know, speed the transition? Well, it's interesting that the study itself doesn't really get into how that influence might be used or how it is being used. They were just trying to point a finger to say a lot of focus has looked at the fossil fuel companies themselves, but who owns the owners is what one researcher put to me. And, uh, and just, just saying who has influence, you know, could help you see who could slow or accelerate a transition. Uh, spokespeople from some of these companies I spoke with said climate change is definitely something that they advise their investors on and they're thinking about, and they're thinking about sustainability. But also there's uh, difficulties there, you know, they don't want to be seen as like the environmental police or sort of like activist investing. But there is precedent for some of these companies creating influence. Probably the the biggest case recently was this hedge fund called Engine One with ExxonMobil sort of led this push to put some climate hawks on the board of Exxon. Next up, here's how you could talk to a virtual assistant privately without the public embarrassment of saying, hey, Siri, call (laughs) mum. Did your phone just call your mother then? (laughs) <laughs> I, I do not have virtual assistants activated. Uh, I don't want my phone recording me. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing, as a technology reporter, I actually turn my virtual assistants off most of the time, partly for that as well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, this could also be useful when you're talking to a virtual assistant when your mouth is muffled by a mask during a pandemic, which <laughs> I'm sure many of us are accustomed to. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So that could come in handy. Um, So Jeremy, this is about an experimental earphone system called Ear Command that can detect the wearer silently mouthing words without actually having to speak aloud. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah. So when we're speaking words aloud, or in this case, mouthing them silently to ourselves, our ear canals are actually changing shape as our facial muscles are moving around. So uh, basically, with the help of some AI, this new earphone technology can learn to associate certain changes in our ear canals with certain words or sentences. 
and uh, the earphone does this by emitting some near ultrasound signals into the wearer's ear. And so those signals bounce around inside and then get reflected back to the earphone as echoes. And that provides the information for the AI to analyze patterns in those reflected echoes in order to figure out what the wearer might be silently mouthing. <laughs> you can't even swear to yourself anymore <laughs> silently because it'll get picked up now. I guess that depends if that's one of the words it can understand. <laughs> How many words can this technology pick up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think luckily, uh, luckily right now it does not appear to have, be able to recognize any swear words. It can understand uh, 32 single word commands and 25 sort of sentence length commands. And right now the researchers behind this have basically trained it to uh, recognize certain phrases that you might use when you're talking to your virtual assistant like Siri, such as, you know, what is the weather? Or there's always the classic call mom. And uh, it can also recognize <laughs> uh, the names of certain popular smartphone apps that you may want the virtual assistant to access, such as, you know, TikTok or Snapchat. So I guess, especially when you're calling people, there can be disastrous consequences if, <laughs> if it gets it wrong. Sure. Um, so how accurate is it? Right now, it's pretty good, but it's still making mistakes about 10% of the time when it's trying to interpret single words and 12% of the time when it's trying to interpret sentence commands. But the researchers believe that with additional training and some more speech samples, the algorithm the AI essentially will be able to reduce that error rate to about 5%, which is kind of what you want in a commercial sort of voice recognition system. What I like about this, or maybe like is the wrong word, but what's kind of weird about this is how like, you know, this this is moving towards telepathy, isn't it almost? Because like technology is moving ever, ever into our heads. Like it's going to be embedded in our heads soon enough. And, you know, we'll we may just mouth these things and eventually think them. And uh, yeah, then we don't even have to talk to anyone. Yeah, all you have to do again. is ping near ultrasound continually inside your own right. head. <laughs> the nice thing. I look forward to that yeah. day. The nice thing in this case is that at least you don't need to get something surgically implanted in your head. It's just at least a pair of headphones. Right, let's take a quick break to tell you about New Scientist Live. Yes, it's the world's greatest festival of science and technology. It's a fantastic event and it's returning to London this year on the 7th to the 9th of October. There are loads of great speakers. Uh, one who I'm really looking forward to is Serian Sumner, a behavioural ecologist who will explain why wasps are worthy of our admiration from their vital ecological services to, I'm told, their quirky sex lives. <laughs> uh, love, love a bit of wasp sex. Uh, this week, I'm <laughs> going to plug a talk um, coming up at New Scientist Live by Julia Cook. She's uh, You'll like this, um, Penny. She's a plant functional ecologist and she Lovely. studies how plants use silicon and how they respond to climate change and why why some species become weeds. Mm, very interesting. You can go to newscientist.com slash live to book tickets to this unmissable event, which is taking place in London, but you can also stream it online. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Now for our next topic, I hope we're not going to have to concentrate too hard, Claire, because you're going to tell us about why too much mental effort tires us out, aren't you? Yes, I hope I hope this won't be too taxing. So, so this is a question that has uh, long puzzled neuroscientists and maybe some of our listeners too. So if you if you do some challenging mental task, so maybe going to work if you have that kind of a job, or spending the day studying or revising for an exam, you might feel quite worn out afterwards, even though you've been sat in the chair all day. So you feel tired, and until now, we didn't know why that is. Hmm, I've never, I'm embarrassed to say I've never really thought about why it might be. I mean, is it not that you've just run out of energy? Well, uh, no. Uh, so that was one idea. But when they investigated that, they found that that doesn't happen. So in people who are healthy, the brain isn't allowed to go short of energy. By energy, we mean glucose because that yeah. is our main source of chemical energy. So the brain is far too important for that to happen. So to investigate this, uh, researchers at the Paris Brain Institute uh, used a technique called magnetic resonance spectroscopy. And this can tell you levels of chemicals inside living tissue without harming it. So they scanned people's brains as they lay inside the scanner, either doing six hours of a, a quite a difficult memory task. It made me feel tired just to uh, read about it. I was going to say six hours. It was awful. Um, <laughs> or or uh, the same task, but an easier version of it for a comparison. So they found that with the harder task that required more concentration, there was more of a buildup of a chemical in the brain called glutamate. Now, this is an amino acid, one of the building blocks of proteins. But in the brain, it's used as a neurotransmitter. So neurotransmitters are used at the junctions between brain cells called synapses. And that's where nerve signals, they cannot be transmitted electrically. So they have to pass in the form of a chemical. And that's what glutamate does. And glutamate is actually the main neurotransmitter used in the brain. So it's not hugely surprising that if we we were if we were going to see a build up of any chemical that it would be glutamate. It reminds me a bit of uh, how in muscles, you know, when you've been working hard physically, you can get a build up of lactic acid, and that makes your muscles ache or get cramps. What? So does glutamate? cramp your brain in the same way. <laughs> no, so it's not literally the same. Uh, as far as we know, there are no pain receptors in the brain, so it couldn't do that. It, that's more a figure of speech when, if you talk about your brain aching. But they, they did find another effect as glutamate levels rose. So the memory tests, were they were interspersed with another kind of task. And this asked people to make choices between certain levels of rewards, sometimes a small sum of money, in return for some further mental effort. And without getting bogged down in all the details, basically, as people's mental fatigue built up through the day, and as their glutamate built up, people started choosing easier options in the second kind of task. <laughs> so it's like when you've been working hard all day and you just want to chill basically, and, and not have to think about anything. Yeah, right? and you might choose tend to choose um, quite, co quite relaxing <laughs> programmes to watch. Sandman. Some crime drama that, that mentally taxes you further. Yeah. It does make me think of, you know, sometimes when I read a nature paper, <laughs> I actually 
it sometimes sends me to sleep. Because it's like, <laughs> oh, God, this is so hard to understand. And then you just nod off. Well, the I mean, is that just old age yeah, or is that this the, glutamate building up? The researchers actually recommend sleep as the best way to relieve oh, that feeling. Um, although they didn't scan people after they slept. But right. they say that that's kind of the natural way that the brain gets its levels of all its, all its neurotransmitters back to normal. And that's what, another reason why sleep is so important to get good sleep hygiene. Well, actually, you say that, but sleep hygiene means not having naps in the day. But, you know, having a nap in the day could be just what you need if mm. you're feeling mentally tired out. Anyway, also, I just wanted to add that this research isn't just relevant to, you know, typical people who are who are healthy and are just wondering why they feel a bit uh, drained after, after concentrating hard. It could also be relevant to uh, medical situations. So, for instance, people who feel that they have brain fog, uh, which is that condition when people say they find it very hard to concentrate. Uh, some people who have had long-lasting COVID symptoms say that they get this condition called brain fog. We don't really know what brain fog is, but this would be a very interesting aspect to investigate to see how what their glutamate levels are like. Claire, with the glutamate, how do we know it's not just a correlate? So it's a sign that your brain's been really busy, but it isn't necessarily the cause of you feeling really mentally fatigued. That's a really good question. And they don't because they didn't do any experiments to try to you know, reduce glutamate. So that's fair enough. I mean, this is the first time they have ever spotted this. It, yeah. We've been wondering about this question for ages. And they, this is the first study that, that has found something that does rise like that with increasing levels of mental concentration. So that would, you know, that would be a very interesting question to study next. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, and this is our segment that celebrates Earth's most extraordinary inhabitants. Uh, Penny. Well, this week we've got for you a scarlet-sided pobble bonk. <laughs> which, is, which is worthy of Life Form of the Week for the name alone. Yeah, shall we just leave it at that then? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It is... It, it is a really great name. So the scarlet-sided pobblebonk is an Australian frog. Apparently, it has a. Of course, it's Australian, like isn't it? I mean, yeah, where else yeah. could it be from? <laughs> um, yeah. So the sound. It may, apparently it makes a call that sounds like bonk, and it has a red patch on its thigh. So that helps explain the amazing name. But that's not the only remarkable thing about it. Its tadpoles live in extremely acidic water in the Wollum, a swampy region in eastern Australia. Okay, and and how acidic are you to, are you saying? So it's almost or in the realm of being as acidic as some stomach acid, so pH oh. three point five or lower. Oh, God, uh, so I, I just had this image of swallowing the tadpoles <laughs> and they could survive in my stomach, which you know that's really unpleasant. So how do they get around living? Uh, you know, surviving in that sort of horrible environment. Yeah, so, um, you know, most frogs can't, most tadpoles, it's really hard to live in acidic water. And one of the big issues for tadpoles and also for fish is that acid breaks apart the lining of their gills and that causes them to leak sodium ions. They basically just lose all of their salt, which isn't good for the balance and physiological function of their bodies. All right. So uh, so what's the trick to get around it? The pobble bonks? So so we don't actually know for sure, but there's some new experimental evidence reported on by writer Jake Bueller for us that hints that these tadpoles are really good at sucking up calcium ions and this helps to stop their gill linings from breaking up. 
What, so they've experimented on the pobble bonks, have they? <laughs> You're just saying it as much as oh, you can. Of course I am, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so a team of researchers conducted a variety of experiments that together suggest that it's all about sucking up calcium. They showed that tadpoles in acid water had more sodium left in their body that when there was also extra calcium in that water. And then also if they blocked calcium uptake, that caused these tadpoles to then leak more sodium. E. That's poor old tadpole leaking sodium. Mm. Have they got any more evidence or is that it? Yeah, um, it's all a, a little bit correlational, but they also looked at gene activity in the tadpoles and found that those that grew up in more acidic conditions had greater activity of a calcium transport protein in their gills. And that really does seem to sort of su suggest really that calcium uptake plays a key role here. Uh, well, I, I salute the pobble bonk and its, uh, <laughs> its clever way of surviving. I want to know what it sounds like. Penny, can you replicate the sound? <laughs> so I did have a good look on YouTube and I couldn't find the specific oh. uh, species, but there are several <laughs> different types of pobble bonk and they do sound like it is kind of like a bonk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next up, Antonia Padilla is a cosmologist at the University of Nottingham and author of a new book, Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them. The book explores some of the biggest secrets of the universe through weird and wonderful numbers. Our resident astronomer, Abby Beale, spoke to Tony about the book and asked him to explain a couple of these unfathomable numbers. Uh, yeah, this is where Graham's number comes from. But the first one we're going to hear about builds on what we were talking about in the podcast last week about the multiverse and the different values for things you get in different universes. And here's Abby. So one of the numbers in your book is 10 to the power of minus 120. So this is zero followed by a decimal point followed by 119 more zeros before the number one. So how can our listeners even begin to imagine a number like this? Well, I mean, of course, uh, that's kind of tricky to even begin to imagine it because in a way, it's the smallest number in the universe. It, it's kind of a measure of how unlikely our universe is. One of the big puzzles we have in physics is, um, is how did the universe get so big, right? How did it get so big? Because one of the things we believe is, is that the empty space itself should be filled with this, this vacuum energy. And that vacuum energy should, should be really large and it should turn and, and twist the universe in, in, into oblivion. It should sort of crushed it within a moment of it, of it being born. But it didn't do that. And the truth is, is that the vacuum energy of the universe is much smaller than we expect by a factor of 10 to the minus 120. So that's where the number comes from. It's to do with, with why the vacuum energy of our universe is so small compared to, to our theoretical prediction coming from our, our best theories. Okay, so what is the vacuum energy? What you can imagine is, is it's kind of the energy of empty space. You know, you imagine the universe and you've got energy stored in all the radiation in the universe, the stars, the planets, the people. But, you know, you, so you've got all this energy. Now, what, imagine you took all that energy out, you took all that mass out, you took all the stars out, you took all the people out, you took all the little green men out, you take them all out. And what's <laughs> left over? Well, empty space, right? And you can say, well, does that empty space have energy? And you might naively think it doesn't because it's just empty space, right? But Actually, quantum mechanics tells us that it does. It has this vacuum energy. Very, There are these virtual particles. They're not real particles. They're, they're kind of transients almost. And they, they pop in and out of existence. And, and they, can, they have to be there. Quantum mechanics tells us it, they will be there. And they should endow the vacuum, the empty space, with mm. an energy. 
And when you actually calculate how much energy that is, it's enormous based on our theoretical prediction. It's a really, really, really big number. You know, you've got literally enough energy in a coffee cup of vacuum based on these ideas to literally blow the universe up billions and billions and billions and billions of times over. Yeah, that doesn't happen. And what could be the reason for that? There's various ideas out there. Sort of many people in string theory, for example, would say that we have this a whole multiverse of possible universes with many different vacuum energies. And the reason that we find ourselves in a universe with a very small vacuum energy is because basically, if it were any larger, then stars and planets would never have been able to form. The universe would have either crunched too quickly or expanded too fast for stars and planets to form and galaxies. And if that doesn't happen, then, then human life doesn't, or complex life doesn't develop, doesn't evolve. And so almost by looking, considering our own existence, it's kind of saying, well, therefore it had to be small because if it had been large, you wouldn't have existed in the first place. So that's one possible explanation, but we're still working on ideas to find other ways to try to explain why the vacuum energy is so small. And it's something that I've spent my whole career thinking about. Yeah. So, and you're doing experiments um, related to neutron stars. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the things that we're thinking about is, can we find a way from neutron stars to figure out what's going on. Now, why might that be a good place to look? Well, it turns out in neutron stars, neutron stars are obviously some of the most dense objects in the universe. They are the most dense objects in the universe. And one of the things at the core of these stars, you have extremely sort of exotic, extreme environments. And what can happen in that core is you can have like a transition and the vacuum energy can actually change in a small region of the neutron star. Now, that vacuum energy change could, in principle, impact gravitationally its properties, its mass, its radius, and so on and so forth. It can imprint that on the star. So what you could ask is, well, if there's some mechanism which is cancelling off vacuum energy, then maybe it's doing it inside the neutron star as well. And that would therefore leave an imprint on the size and the shape of the star itself. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to quantify, well, what kind of things could happen to the vacuum energy inside the star? What are the different possibilities? And what would the signatures be for the size and shape of the star? And we have really good, well, we have, you know, we're entering the area of gravitational wave astronomy now. You know, we're going to get more and more information about neutron stars and, and what they look like. And so from that, we can, we can hope to, to sort of get an insight into what's happening with vacuum energy. And so that's just one of the numbers in, in your book. Um, could you maybe tell us about some other numbers that you mentioned? I mean, we've talked about a small number, so we should probably talk about a big number now, right? So um, why not Graham's number? Graham's numbers, I love Graham's number. So Graham's number is a really big number, right? It was, I mean, I don't just mean big. I don't just mean like a billion or a trillion or a big number like that. It's beyond big in terms of anything you could possibly imagine. And I kind of mean that literally, you see, Graham's numbers held the record for being the, uh, the sort of largest number ever to be used in a mathematical proof. It actually appeared in the Guinness Book of Records for that reason. It no longer holds that, but never mind that. But it was a very big number, right? And if you imagined all of its digits written out sort of one by one in your head, then your head would actually collapse to form a black hole. <laughs> right, But the reason that is, is because there is so much information in that decimal expansion of Graham's number. It's so big. It's so big that you'd be cramming so much information in your head that you would exceed all the limits on information that you can contain in a given region of space. And information actually weighs. That's one of the things we've learned. Information 
actually weighs. And if it weighs, if it has, you can associate it with energy, then gravitationally, that's going to have an impact. And it's going to, the only object that could even begin to store that amount of information is actually a black hole. Actually, that wouldn't even be enough. You'd still only shave a little bit of Graham's number. That was Antonio Padilla talking about his new book, Fantastic Numbers and Where to Find Them. And he's written a piece for us. Uh, It's in the magazine this week. We'll put a link in the show notes. That's it for this week. Uh, Thanks to our guests, Claire Wilson, James Deneen and Jeremy Sue. And thanks to you for listening. Remember to get that bargain deal of 50% off a subscription to New Scientist. Go to newscientist.com slash pod 50. Yep, newscientist.com slash pod 50. Do check it out. And right now, go and press follow on um, whatever podcast player you're listening to this on and follow us. Thank you. That's it. And see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Thank you.